Hey, Young Turks, I'm Nomi Konst. Uh, we have a special guest today. You may know uh, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich's videos, which go viral on Facebook all the time, uh, especially during the campaign season of 2016. He would do these explainer videos about the economy and the rise of income inequality, uh, mirroring the messaging that Bernie Sanders was relaying through the campaign. Um, our audience is very familiar with that. Well, he has a, a film out now it's on Netflix called Saving Capitalism, and the director of the film, Jacob Kornbluth, is is with us today from Berkeley. Uh, Jacob is known for uh, for he won an Emmy for Years of Living Dangerously, and uh, he's known for the film Inequality for All, and of course Saving Capitalism. And uh, his company is Inequality Media. Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you had Thanks an earthquake. For <laughs> I survived. I think uh, I'm, I'm in one piece, so I'm glad to be here. And I'm I'm warm inside, you know, hiding from <laughs> snowpocalypse outside right now. So, I, you know, I guess the first question I'm going to ask you is, how did you get to know Robert Reich? How did this, this start? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You brought up all those videos that were part of the campaign. Well, I, I made those videos, and um, I've been working with Robert Reich starting on short videos in about 2008. Eight. It, it was right after the uh, economic collapse. I started, picked up a camera and started making videos with uh, Robert Reich. And I found that those videos had an audience. Um, we made some about uh, the battle for a public option in the healthcare system and some of early sort of explainers that were less straight advocacy and more about trying to get help people understand what was happening. And I found that there was a real audience for those videos. And those videos grew into um, Inequality for All, my first feature film collaboration uh, with Reich, which um, uh, was at Sundance in 2013 and, and released, uh, unfortunately, by the Weinstein Company uh, <laughs> in, in uh, 20, 2013. But that, and then we sort of doubled down on sort of trying to explain complex economic issues in ways everybody can understand and founded Inequality Media together, Reich and I. And that those videos sort of evolved in sort of one long story from inequality for all through all these short videos to saving capitalism. So I see saving capitalism and my collaboration with Reich as sort of an eight year story that we've been telling using video to try to explain what I think is one of the most unique economic times that I've seen historically for America and try to give some real context about how we got into this mess and hopefully some ideas about how we can get out of it. Why is it called saving capitalism? You know, it's interesting. Uh, people on the left hate the title because they think, uh, why does capitalism need saving? And people on the right hate the title because why would you have to save capitalism? It's so it's so perfect. So it sort of uh, makes everybody, uh, puts everybody off the title in a way. <laughs> but I think it's actually the perfect title because it's not about the ism. It's not about capitalism. It's about trying to understand an economic system as a set of rules and figuring out who do those rules benefit and who do they hurt. Mm -hmm. So, so many people get swept up in what the, if capitalism is better than socialism or if uh, communism is, you know, better or worse than capitalism or socialism. And the real story is there's a set of rules that make an economic system up. There's no free market. Every market is based on rules. Who do those rules benefit and who do they hurt? So over the last 40 years, what we have seen in America is that those rules increasingly benefit the wealthy, big corporations, and um, a very small set of people, and increasingly don't help out 
the middle class and sort of regular people across the country. So when you get past the ism and you get to the real story, that's when saving capitalism uh, makes sense. We've, we've gone through these periods before. I mean, you had the robber barons, uh, and now now we're going through this this capitalist bubble. I don't know what you would call it, where where income inequality is so vast and monopolies are are predominant. I mean, you see it with net neutrality now being reversed. It's a perfect example. Um, but is there a moment? And the tax bill. And the tax bill, of course, the tax bill. Uh, is you said forty years ago. I I've been doing a lot of reporting um, globally, you know, with the Labor Party and interviewing these movements globally, um, talking about the rise of neoliberalism. And comparing that to what's happening at home, 40 years ago, was there like a moment when people got into a room and said, all right, we're going hard on capitalism and this is how we're going to push back against these populists? What led to that, that 40 year mark? 40 years is actually uh, maybe the wrong, uh, the wrong set of years. It's, it's sort of a, a rough area. But in the film, in Saving Capitalism, we point to a memo, uh, the Powell memo, that was written by a, a future uh, Supreme Court Justice, Lewis Powell, uh, that sort of advocated for big business to take a much more active role in government, uh, essentially. I think that was 1971. Um, so it took a few years to sort of percolate through, but what you see is you see the rise of globalization and technological change happening in the early 70s, which is a lot of what a lot of people point to as the, as the sort of dividing line when ec economic inequality started to widen. But beyond that, uh, you see businesses and wealthy individuals start to advocate for changes in rules that benefit them much more around this memo. So we sort of put that line in there. 1971 is sort of a starting point. Um, I don't know if you can point to any one thing as usual. There's It's much more complex than that. But this is an interesting point and an interesting moment because what it focuses on is the sense that this change, this widening economic inequality as a product of globalization and technological change was not inevitable. It didn't have to happen that way, that it was a set of rules pushed by people that changed the, the economic system in a way that benefited the wealthy and, and hurt the middle class. Once you understand that this wasn't inevitable, that this was a sense of businesses really changing the way they operated within government, that's helps uh, clarify the story, but also give you a sense that the economy isn't like the weather. It doesn't just happen to us. We can change it. And if we changed it for the worse, then we can uh, take our economy back. Was there something happening with unions then? I mean, you'd think that the natural opposition would be unions um, in the 70s, but they were much stronger than they are, than they are now. Why were, they, why were, were big businesses and, and um, these wealthy individuals so successful in infiltrating our government's policies? Well, um, they, why were they so successful? I think because um, they were focused on changing it rule by rule and bit by bit. And it's been a sustained effort over uh, a number of years. Mm -hmm. It's true that we show an inequality for all. And again, we see it in saving capitalism. And I think it's sort of well known that the decline of unions mirrors the decline of the middle class, that you can line those graphs up over each other and they look exactly the same as union membership was in the sort of mid thirties in the sixties, which was high enough so that if you, even if you weren't in a union, you got the benefit of the union bargaining across a spectrum if you're in say the auto industry. Mm -hmm. And now it's about 7% for, um, uh, for the overall workforce. So it's declined, you know, uh, a lot. And 
We've seen that decline mirror the decline of the middle class over time. And if you lay the decline of the middle class and the decline of unions graphs over one another, they exactly mirror each other. And we have exactly that picture in, in inequality for all. Um, so unions have played a role. Now, the question is, is, you know, were unions gutted by globalization and technological change or were they gutted by uh, corporations that were advocating for um for you know, rule changes against uh, unions. And what you see is that the decline in unions uh, was much larger because of the influence of big business. And that in a place like Germany, for instance, which has a much higher union participation, they also have much uh, smaller economic inequality uh, across uh, the economy. And in generally speaking, are, are growing at a faster clip than we are in America. So, um, so that this change happened, it wasn't inevitable. And it was in some way the product of a rule by rule change of the economic system over a large period of time. You hear this often um, from centrists saying that uh, when there was the debate over TPP, um, whether or not TPP, this was during the campaign, uh, should, should be favored by Democrats or not. And there was a big divide within the party over that. Uh, but you'd hear some centrists say, well, there's really no reversing what happened in the late 70s, all these trade these, these trade policies into the 90s and 2000s, that there's no reversing it, that you're not going to bring back all the jobs, that unions have been crushed, so you might as well um, just acclimate and, and deal with it. And that's one of the arguments we heard for TPP. Is there any sort of recovery for unions? I mean, is, is there turning back? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the world doesn't go... Uh doesn't go in reverse, the, everything goes forward. So we don't go back to the good old days, but we, what we do is we see that there's vast areas within the economy that are not outsourceable, that are not you know, uh, uh, exportable jobs, that are in the service sector, that are vast swaths of the economy mm -hmm. that are not unionized properly. And you know, the economy changed over those times and economic, uh, I'm sorry, globalization and technological change had a real impact. Mm -hmm. and there's no question that it's not the same as it was in the 50s or 60s. And to try to kind of go back to that era is, uh, is, is a fool's errand. But it's certainly true that there are vast swaths of the economy that can, um, that can be uh, unionizable. And the danger of that argument that you just laid out is that um, this change was inevitable, that it had to happen, that the, that it in some ways just happened to us and there was nothing we could do about it. And that's not true. And it also takes away agency from people to change it going forward. So what we really try to lay out in Saving Capitalism is rule by rule, how the economic system changed to benefit the rich, mm -hmm. which should frustrate you and make you angry, but then also give you a sense that if they can change the rules in that direction, we can change the rules back. So we can change the rules back, but you're fighting... Monopolies. You're fighting AT and T, Time Warner, you know, Pepsi Cola. I mean, the list goes on and on. These major companies that own own the marketplace globally. How on earth are you? Uh, even if we do have this populist wave and, and a bunch of democratic socialists get elected uh, to Congress overnight by some sort of miraculous <laughs> uh, move, you still have to fight. I mean, these are still human beings, and it's one thing to run on these policies, but once you're in Congress and you see how the the sausage is made. And the lobbyists are showing up and, you know, the human element comes in. And that's that's essentially what happened you know, 40 years ago. Right. How can you fight these big monopolies and, and win these policies over? Well, the 
it's going to be very hard is what is the you know usual sort of disclaimer for all this. But the, the best reason to believe that we can do it now is that we've done it before. If you go back and we look at it in, in saving capitalism, if you go back to the Gilded Age, the robber barons of the late 1880s, 1890s, conditions were terrible, terrible, and people couldn't see a way out of it. Well, we had a progressive era that started in 1900. Teddy Roosevelt, a very wealthy, uh, you know, uh, a very wealthy guy, um, sort of saw that this was a, a danger, not just to the ec economic long-term future of America, but also to the democracy uh, of America. And we had a series of rules that changed over time: the 40-hour work week, the you know, chi no child labor law. Uh, you know, childs weren't weren't allowed to exploit uh, children in working conditions. Things like that that sort of changed um, slowly, uh, one rule at a time, over say a period of from 1900 to about 1914, and again picked up you know in the kind of you know, after the Great Depression in the, in the, you know, 1930 or so. So what the only thing that I can say that gives me hope or one of the things that I say that gives me hope is that we've done it before, that we've mm. been through very dark periods in American history when capitalism has essentially gone off the rails and we've gotten that capitalism, that, that economic system, whatever you want to call it, back on the rails before. It's been this bad before and we've fixed it. And we've faced down strongman dictator types in America and we've gotten rid of them and, and you know, toyed with uh, this kind of extremist leadership before. And we've gone to genuine positive social change every time in America. My hope is we do it again. Um, you know, we're at an incredibly dangerous time in America. Everybody knows it. This, this sense of Donald Trump being a kind of unstable strongman dictator in the, in the kind of um, model of something you might see in Latin America in previous years or in, in dangerous, what we associate with dangerous parts across the globe is real. He's that, this is that unnormal, he's that unstable. He's not a normal conservative, principled conservative, which I think not, you know, I wouldn't personally vote for, but would be much happier with somebody like Mike Pence than, than this guy. So we can't normalize just how, how dangerous this time is and be Pollyannish about our ability to kind of fix the system, but we have to know that we've done it before so that we don't get too defeated. Because I think if we get too defeated, if we get too cynical, if, uh, you know, there is this danger of people unplugging. You see this kind of mix with people on the left when they're uh, some mix of the most energized that they've ever been in my lifetime, uh, which is incredibly exciting, and in danger of sort of burning out because mm -hmm. they feel like it's it's sort of out of their reach. So what you need, I think, is, you know, what we tried to provide in a film like Saving Capitalism is, you know, that kind of balanced historical look at that we've done this before, that it's not hopeless, but also that it's really scary time, because I think that's all true. You are seeing a lot of people uh, rise up in, in their communities and organize around specific issues, actionable issues, uh, very attainable, reachable issues. Um, and you have people who are running for local office that had no interest before running on these types of ideas. Um, with that being said, it, it seems like there are, there are some states that, not many, because Democrats don't have um, control of many states in the country right now, but there's a lot of states and cities who've been pushing back on Trump's policies. Uh, do you see that, that maybe that's a pathway in, in the short term to push for you know, stronger union laws and uh, Wisconsin, I'm off to Wisconsin this week, uh, next week, and I'm going to be covering some of the organizing that's happening in Wisconsin to push back against, you know, the Paul Ryan, Ayn Rand policies that have, have been struck in a very strong union state. I mean, do you see that kind of 
as a path to victory in the short run? Well, you see an incredible amount of energy being focused on a local uh, and state level right now and in very motivated people. I mean, the real story on a national level politically is that the energy is coming from these this progressive pushback on a local and state level. That really is what's happening right now. I think in broadly speaking, there's some real soul searching on the both the Democratic Party level and on the Republican level. But uh, on a kind of localized level, what you see is incredibly motivated citizens, more motivated than I've seen, you know, in my lifetime, actually, uh, sort of fighting for these kind of issues on a state and local level, I find that to be incredibly inspiring. I mean, I live in California and, you know, it's so easy to get, uh, I guess, down, uh, cynical, I guess would be the word, because uh, you sort of feel like you're in a blue state and nothing's, you know, you can't affect the national discussion. But what you see is these, incredi these incredible groups of indivisible or swing left or sister district, these sort of people are all so motivated to sort of change the system for the better. And it's weird. It's sort of like they've, they can't take it anymore, if that makes any sense. Like they, they feel like they're just kind of had it, like they have to sort of do something and push back. That is when social change happens, right? I mean, it comes from these sort of outliers in Wisconsin and these outliers in Michigan that I've seen around the Flint area and these, you know, even people in all these blue states who are sort of more motivated to make the trip to places like Alabama and Wisconsin to sort of see what they can fix it. That's incredible and amazing and inspiring. I think you're absolutely right to hold those up as points of um, optimism. And I think that that kind of energy feels like the strongest force in politics to me right now. It feels like the most interesting story. It's hard to cover in broad you know, terms because it hasn't quite changed the system. But my belief is that 2018 flips the House and, and, and maybe the Senate. I'm hopeful about that. And that I think we see a generational shift in 2020. The sort of, uh, the sort of extension of all of this energy leads to the presidential election of 2020. We get to rewrite all the census, uh, all the census districts unrig all the gerrymandered uh, states, and you see a change in the face of America that will be reflected in the electorate in 2020, and I see a generational shift coming. So um, I'm excited about that, and I think we're at just the beginnings of that. You mentioned gener generational shift, and that was that was actually my next question, was um, for, for millennials, a lot of this stuff makes sense. They overwhelmingly identify as progressives. They're not signing up for the parties, but they are progressive in beliefs. Um, and, and part of that, I think, is just because they've been the victims of the economy, which you know, we're all very familiar with. But if, if, you're, if you're a millennial and you're talking and you're going out there and campaigning and um, you're talking to maybe even, let's just say, party members, Democratic Party members that are older from a different generation who are still of this belief that, that it's, the, it's the identity politics, for lack of a better term, and you, know, you don't talk about economics, how do you... How do you message to these people that that when you talk about economics, it actually works for everybody and that it's the smartest path? It's what is what's the strong messaging that you would use and, and the advice that you would give people to go out there and eventually you know evangelize um, the message that you're putting out there in this film? Well, uh, first, I think that the story in saving capitalism. Uh, and firstly, I speak. I, I relate to a lot of those millennial uh, perspectives, you know, this, a lot of them don't even identify as capitalists. They, they identify as socialists uh, these days or, or won't put that label on themselves, which I think is fascinating development. But um, 
and a lot of them have pushed back with uh, me for the title of this film. But uh, <laughs> but the story of of uh, saving capitalism is fundamentally about power. It's about be an economic system that feels like it's bullying regular people, feels like it's bullying young people, feels like it's bullying the middle class, and that the game is rigged against them, right? So that so all of those things, I will tell anybody, and this is the message of the film, are consistent across the political spectrum. People on the right who you, if you're a, a left-wing progressive, have virtually nothing in common with, people on the right also feel bullied. Um, mm -hmm. In the film, we talk to the second most conservative member by the way they rate these things in, in, the, in the House of Representatives, David Bratt, um, a Tea Party conservative, and found a lot to agree with him about in terms of wow. crony capitalism, the rigging of the system, the sense that sort of, you know, the economic system is stopped working rule by rule for regular people. This is consistent. This is not a left wing issue or a right wing issue. It's not just a progressive point of view. It's not a, frankly, a millennial point of view. A lot of people feel that. What you see from establishment Democrats and from establishment Republicans, frankly, is this sense that um, there's a status quo for which the system is bought and paid for by these wealthy corporations and wealthy individuals that we can't shake up, that we can't mess with, because that's just the way the game is played. And I think that story is going to change very quickly. I think we're seeing sort of wholesale rejection of that by not just millennials, but a lot of uh, other people. And it's not politically specific. It's not just some marginalized progressive narrative. This is a story about, you know, major change happening to the center of America. What you what you described as what you call centrist, I would be careful about how you use that language, honestly, because I feel like what the center believes, in my experience, having been across the country with saving capitalism and also having talked with a lot of people, is a broad frustration with an economic system mm -hmm. that they feel has stopped working for them. And I feel like that shouldn't be called a progressive message or um, you know, something on the margins. That's, that's actually mainstream American thinking right now. Jacob, fascinating conversation. Um, I'm looking forward uh, to, to highlighting more of your, your videos because I know you guys aren't going to stop. You're always pushing them out. Uh, where can people, other than the film, which is on Netflix, uh, where can people find your work? Well, um, inequalitymedia.org is where you can find the videos. The Robert Reich Facebook page is a great source. Robert, uh, Robert Reich, just look at him on Facebook. And all of the videos that I make from Resistance Reports, uh, we made 128 videos, I think, last year that were seen almost 300 million times wow. uh, as, of, uh, as of now. So uh, pretty um, uh, frequent. Quint, uh, you know, we, we, we have about a video a week, so keep your eye out for- That's fantastic. Uh, for there's, there's endless content, especially with this endless president. Endless content, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Great talking to you. Great Take talking care. to you, too.